Hello, my name's David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. This week we're going to get back to talking about British politics, about Brexit, to start with about the Labour Party. Something has got to give at some point, but where is the fault line? Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, the magazine that publishes its political analysis in between essays on art and history, philosophy and technology, Princess Margaret or the Garden of Eden. Visit lrb.co.uk forward slash talking for a reading list of similarly eclectic pieces to accompany today's episode and a special subscription offer for Talking Politics listeners. Six months of the LRB for just £1 an issue. We have Helen Thompson with us this week. Pleasure to welcome back Chris Bickerton after the summer. And for the first time, also a pleasure to welcome Wazim Yacoub, who is a historian of political thought here in Cambridge and also has some insight into the Labour Party and some of its uh, internal goings-on. Yesterday, this is Wednesday morning, yesterday two things happened simultaneously in the Commons. Dominic Raab and Keir Starmer were squaring off about the state of the Brexit negotiations and at the same time the Labour leadership and Jeremy Corbyn in particular was engaged in a quixotic, I think that's the polite word for it, fight to retain the right to call the foundation of the State of Israel a racist endeavour, a fight that he lost. And that in itself symbolises one of the things that we're going to talk about today, which is for, I assume, most members of the Parliamentary Labour Party, Dominic Raab versus Keir Starmer is the fight. But that was not where the leadership was yesterday. They were having a fight which clearly, at least for Corbyn, is more important than that. So we've known for a long time that Labour MPs and the Labour leadership are not in the same space on lots of questions including possibly on Brexit. But then there are all these other divisions too. The trade union movement, but particularly the GMB this week, has come out and said that it is pushing for, we're not allowed to call it a second referendum, but a people's vote on Brexit. So there's a tension there. There's clearly tensions within the membership and between the membership and the leadership over Brexit. There is the long-standing question of what happens to the Labour Party when the membership moves one way and it's possible that Labour voters move a different way. I'm going to ask Wazim in a bit about momentum and whether that's a united or divided organisation. And then we've also had the resignation of Frank Field, or rather withdrawal from the Labour whip. And one of the things that he said that he could no longer tolerate were the divisions within his own constituency party. And you do hear increasingly about some of these fights being played out at the constituency level, and often that's where it's ugliest. British politics at the moment is this kind of nightmarish puzzle where it's so hard to see how all the different bits fit together. But at least with the Tories, some of the divisions are kind of where you'd expect them to be. Theresa May is sort of caught in the middle between one wing and another wing over Brexit. But with Labour, I really struggle to see where the fault line is. I mean, if something is going to give, where is it going to break? Of all of those things that I described, is there one that you think is, if you were the Labour leadership, where the and McDonnell has also come out recently and expressed for the first time his real anxiety that the party might split? Where is it going to come? So I think one of the problems with the the Labour Party at the moment is that all of these divisions, which in many ways are particularly deep and complicated now, interact with this broader thing that we're calling Brexit 
which for the Labour Party poses a real challenge because on the one hand, it's difficult to know where it's going. So the thing itself is entirely undefined. You know, what form is it taking? Uh, when will it actually happen and how? But then Labour is in opposition. So all the tactics of being in opposition when you're faced with a weak government, do you take a strong stand? Do you try and sit on the fence, which has generally been the party's position to wait it out and then be opportunistic when something dramatic happens? All of those things are interacting with the divisive effect that I think Brexit has on the party as a whole and its supporters. And it seems to me that we assume, I think, that we've got a core at the very top that we suspect are broadly sympathetic to Brexit, or at least more on the Eurosceptic side, but have been keeping their cards very close to their chest. But are explicitly not in favour of a second referendum. I mean, that's one of the reasons why, for one of the main unions to come out and advocated is the beginning of a possible split there. I mean, that they have been clear about. Corbyn does not believe any more than Theresa May does that we should vote again. It's as if the dividing lines are just, you know, lining themselves up. So if if one of the key questions is, are you for or against a second referendum? This isn't just, are you for or against Brexit? What do you stand on the first referendum? You now take a position on the second referendum. So then the possibilities for splits opening up, which as they are within the Labour movement as a whole, is then on another question. But I think if we have a a leadership that is Eurosceptic but is keeping their cards close to their chest. We have a parliamentary Labour Party that is broadly much more Euro-enthusiastic, more dominated by Remain. Then you have a membership, which I think is maybe the trickiest thing to pin down. I mean, I'd be interested to know what Waz thinks about this, but do we have the kind of radical wing of the Labour membership that are more Eurosceptic than they would like to be able to say they are? Is that something that's going on as well? Uh, Then you have the wider Labour voters and constituencies, where it seems to be that polls suggest that there is a bit of shifting of position there, but more towards Remain. Just to add one more before I ask Waz about that question about the membership. I mean, there's also clearly a generational issue here too, which is there is overwhelming evidence that young people are pro-Remain, but young Labour voters are, I mean, the figures are sort of 80-85% pro-Remain. But they are also, many of them, the most enthusiastic supporters of Jeremy Corbyn. So how does that work? There aren't, at the moment, obvious signs of a split opening up within Momentum themselves. We've recently seen that just being on a Momentum slate can get you a lot of support by the NEC elections. And just to add, that's the other thing that happened this week, that the JC9, including Willsman, who was the one who they tried to drop from the slate, got elected as a slate to the NEC. So being supported by Momentum nets you about seventy to 80,000 votes from the members in uh, the NEC election. Momentum obviously stayed a force to be reckoned with, and they've stayed sort of effectively as a Praetorian guard for Corbyn. So one of the things that will put the leadership in a very difficult place as conference season approaches at the end of this month is a grassroots campaign for a people's vote that's sort of baked into lots of momentum groups locally now. And so there's also a story to be told about the shape of the membership and what momentum looks like now, because of course, as Chris said, there is and still is a radical Labour left that is deeply Eurosceptic and that played a part in momentum in the early days. But what we're seeing now is this enormous influx of younger pro-Remain people into momentum. It's now shaping momentum's agenda. And some of those tensions are really going to come to the fore at Labour conference. So is the generational split the one that is inside momentum? Because that, as you described it, sort of traditional far-left Labour Euroscepticism, I associate with... 
Corbyn's generation, not even one generation down from that, let alone two generations down from that. So how does momentum hold together between the the Corbyn-aged people and the 24-year-olds? Part of the promise of momentum was that it would bring together people who'd felt out in the cold from the Labour Party during the new Labour years. So older members, people who were depressed with the direction Tony Blair took the party, and much younger people invigorated by the Corbyn surge, by the student fees movement, by various by various social movements in the UK political spectrum. And now what we're seeing is that if there were conflicts over the EU within Momentum, they've more or less resolved in favour of a Remain position. So the campaign for a people's vote, a Labour Party grassroots campaign, is now being driven largely by Momentum's resources. So Momentum are now a player in these local party conflicts, but they're trying to push constituency Labour parties by and large towards backing a second referendum, if we're allowed to call it that. Just to be clear, that does sound like a pretty clear answer to where the fault line is then, that this is going to come to a head for Labour when Momentum and the majority opinion in a momentum calls for a people's vote. I think that's And that's going to happen in the next few weeks. Yes, I think that's And that's a really clear answer to the question. I don't dispute what Wiles is saying at all. I think, though, that this conflict in Labour, though, cannot be separated out from the context of the actual negotiations Mm. for Brexit. So the question really is, is, is how much does what momentum does on this actually matter? Not in terms of internal Labour Party politics but in terms of the ability of the Labour Party to have any influence on the broader politics, the national politics of like of, of Brexit. And it seems to me that the only way in which Labour can really shape anything that happens on Brexit between now and the end of March is if there's a general election, which looks to me at least like pretty unlikely. So then the question becomes, OK, well, what are the consequences of the conjunction of the powerlessness of Labour at the moment to influence the national politics of it and how that interacts with Labour's internal divisions and I think the way that that plays out is, is yet unclear and the only other thing I would add is I think that parliamentary party is more divided than we've brought out so far because there clearly is a section of opinion in the I would say in the sort of old centre of the party I mean, not the Blairite part of the party and not the Corbyn part of the party that actually hasn't really moved in terms of it wasn't in favour of leaving the European Union but it's certainly not now in favour of staying in the European Union so I think that sometimes the amount of Remainer sentiment in the parliamentary party is overstated. I think what Helen said about the powerlessness is very important and there is a sense in which this support for a second referendum has an element of I would say posturing to it because the calendar of negotiations are what they are so as we get closer to the possibility and this may not happen because there might be finally no deal around the Chequers proposal. But if May is able to get something in the form of a withdrawal agreement loosely based around this Chequers deal and presents that to Parliament and is able to get that through Parliament, then we're straight away into you know, the end of March, the UK leaves, and then there's the next phase of negotiations around a future relationship. All of that can proceed irrespectively of divisions within the Labour Party and within or, or a pro-second re- referendum uh, momentum movement pressuring the, the Labour Party. That's just irrelevant. So it's a way of demonstrating your Remain credentials, but in a way that is pretty isolated from the nitty-gritty of the negotiations themselves. So are you basically saying, were made to get a deal through the Commons which would be the point where you might then have a second vote, a second vote would probably be redundant. And were she to fail to get a deal through the Commons, 
there's no need for a people's vote at that point because parliamentary politics takes over and either there's a general election or you get a new government. I mean, it's that thing of you can be in favour of a people's vote, a second referendum, but there's no point in the process where it's obvious where that can get purchase on the process. Exactly. I think it's the other way around. I think it's that the, the second referendum is much more relevant. Exactly, but the other well, way around. Well, in the sense that if she doesn't get the... If she doesn't get a withdrawal agreement through Parliament, then this is where every, all bets are off, yeah. and certainly a second re- referendum is a relevant thing on what it would be exactly. Well, exactly, that's what I mean. All bets are off, but there isn't then a thing to have a referendum on. Once there is a thing to have a second referendum on, that thing has already got through the Commons, so it's not clear that a second referendum actually has the political purchase anymore. Because you wouldn't have a second referendum on the withdrawal agreement that she's able to get through by marshalling her support. What I would say is it's not irrelevant, because the extent to which pressure builds up for a second vote... That's likely to put some pressure on Tory MPs who might be sceptical about the Chequers deal to vote through a withdrawal agreement based on it because they can see the way the parliamentary sort of arithmetic is building up and they just decide to stick together. So the outside pressure may actually facilitate getting this withdrawal agreement through. I think still it's more likely that the EU basically rejects that and we sort of have something more, you know, we're not quite sure what would follow that. But I think... The posturing, I think, around the second referendum is important. But I do have a question for Waz about the about momentum. You described, I think, very compellingly the shift within momentum to taking quite a strong position around a second vote and there not being much space for, if you like, Eurosceptic older members who'd also been drawn to momentum in its origins. My question is, my impression, and then so it's a question, is that there are shy Brexiters within Momentum, very young people, not sort of older generations at all, but who don't have anywhere to go with those attitudes towards the EU because it's simply culturally beyond the pale to hold that position. I mean, is, that, is there any truth to that? I think that's got to be right. One of the issues with the leadership's constructive ambiguity line is that it's led many people in momentum to want to put a flag down, as it were, and it's easy to put a flag down and say you're in favour of a people's referendum, even if in practice it's dependent on how the negotiations go. There isn't really anywhere for people who have a more sceptical or worried line about what's going to happen to do. It's possible we'll see some of those views come out in conference, in Labour Party conference, but at the moment they haven't really been expressed. But what we have seen are the sort of Corbyn and Momentum associated or friendly media outlets, if you think of something like Navarra Media, that have provided a powerful outlet for that sort of youthful Euroscepticism that doesn't tether it to the older generation of Eurosceptic. And is it very difficult, just sort of, as Chris says, socially or culturally, within the Labour movement at the moment to be a young sort of 20-something Eurosceptic or not? How does the sort of social pressure work here? Because it is hard. I mean, we're in a university where we know it's very hard for students not to be pro-Remain because it's, it is thought to be, for many people, it's kind of anathema, this issue. I suppose I have mixed feelings on that because, for example, in my trade union, which has a large sort of Labour Party proportion of its membership, there are lots of young people who are very Eurosceptic from a left-wing position. Those are people who've been engaged in Labour Party politics, for example, for a long time. Now, they haven't really cohered into a into an independent Eurosceptic position that's different from, say, old Trotskyist anti-EU positions yet. But I really think we'll have to wait until 
the end of this month to see whether some of those views end up coming out. But to be clear, they aren't Trotskyists. No, they're not. I think that's which the is key why thing they really do need to stake out a different position because yeah. otherwise they will be subsumed by the right. the really older generation. I think the other thing though that there's an air of unreality to this because you know running through the whole campaign for a second referendum and even you know the slightly ludicrous name of the people's vote that's been attached to it is the complete absence of any actual engagement with the question of how Britain can stay in the European Union. So it's being used as a symbolic issue as much as anything else to some extent I would even say a proxy issue for other things. It doesn't have an underlying politics to it. In terms of a politics it's actually engaged with the real world problem. Now if you look at somebody who seems to me to be trying to bridge the position, say Paul Mason, who is is backing a second referendum in this complicated way where it would be, as far as I can understand his positions, a choice between something he calls Norway Plus and staying in the European Union, is that his Norway Plus position that he wants Labour to back is conditional on reform of the internal labour market. I mean, it's just... Yeah pie in the sky or magical thinking or, or whatever you want to call it and this is probably someone in terms of being relatively close to the leadership who's doing more serious thinking about it than other people are so there isn't actually a substantive position that anybody within the Labour Party seems to me to be articulating that gets to grip with the actual predicament of what does Britain do about its relationship with the European Union either inside or outside it and so long as that's the case, then it's quite difficult to see how these mm. issues around it aren't actually just about internal factional warfare within the party rather than an actual political project. And I don't want to get dragged yet anyway into the anti-Semitism question, but it is really striking yesterday, the kind of symbolism of the, clearly the amount of attention that went into the wording of the statement that Corbyn hoped would be appended to the examples that were appended to the rules that would be voted through on the NEC, those 500 words, if you read them closely, you can see that many of those words have had a lot of thought gone into them relative to how Corbyn talks about Europe. It's just two completely different universes. He thinks about the question of whether or not you are allowed to talk about the foundation of the state of Israel as a racist endeavour. He gives that construction of words vastly more attention than the question of what would we be voting on how will we respond as these negotiations unfold what are the choices in front of us it's just two different universes well i think this is because the question of israel and the question of the palestinian cause is fundamental to jeremy corbyn's worldview it is one of the primary reasons he has pursued the kind of political career that he has for 30 years it's not something that he can just give up because there's lots of pressure from inside the party or criticism from the media. This is an insignificant part of who he is. And even the amount of time they spent yesterday on this. I mean, just the amount of time that the Labour Party is spending on those questions relative to what is going to happen over the next six months as we approach the moment of truth of Brexit is astonishing to me. I think we, we've discussed this many times before, but this figure of Jeremy Corbyn is in some way a figure from the past. When people say that, I think they tended to associate it with, I suppose, the political economy of the 1970s as an economic sort of uh, relic, you know, nationalisation, you know, these kinds of things, which then would make you think that Brexit was a critical issue because it poses all these questions about economic integration, trade, all the old sort of traditional Eurosceptic Labour thinking around the EU was all political economy. But that's, that's not what matters for him most. I think it's really about foreign affairs and really about international relations and the questions that are really troubling him now around Israel. 
and it's the contrast is as you say Dave dramatic with Brexit where not that much thought seems to really be going into the positions and actually thinking through what it matters to be in or out and the differences and the models and all of that it's useful that it helps us reassess our thinking about Corbyn that maybe thinking of him as being a relic of the economic past is wrong it's really about international politics for him Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So on this question of the tensions within, not just the membership or momentum, but at a constituency by constituency level. And it's one of the many complications here that, as we're told, though, Helen says we need to be careful about this, but the parliamentary party is broadly pro-Remain, but many of them represent constituencies that voted leave. And that's always thought to be one of the kind of possible fault lines here. But then within those constituencies, we're hearing about various of these battles. And the complication of this for me was symbolised by Frank Fields deciding that he can no longer take the Labour whip. So we have someone who is probably the most pro-Brexit Labour member of Parliament. It's a competition of two or three or four, the four who voted with the government. He nominated Corbyn for the leadership, but is clearly not in any sense a Corbynite. And he stepped down from the whip over the issue of anti-Semitism, which is not something that he's raised in the past, but also because he believes the leadership is not doing enough to kind of staunch the bleeding in his constituency. And he says this as a veteran of the militant battles of the 1980s. I mean, is that just a kind of one-off thing? I mean, that complexity is just Frank Field and he's always described as a maverick or whatever. Or does it actually tell us something about where the fault lines really are here? So there is a respect in which Frank Field is sui generis in a way. The issues with deselection or the threat of deselection in his constituency go back quite a way. His local party has obviously been unhappy for him, with him for some time. He hasn't been attending meetings for some time. He wrote in The Sun in favour of Brexit earlier this year, which put him in everyone's bad books in his constituency. So in some respects, this might be a case of Birkenhead and Frank Field himself being uh, an idiosyncratic figure. But we can also see that there are MPs in other Labour constituencies, for example, John Mann in the North East, who said what's happening to Frank Field is symptomatic of a wider problem, that Frank Field really speaks and is popular with working class constituents who, so Mann claims, are more leave than remain. And that if there isn't a place in the party for someone like that, then there also isn't a place for even very left-wing figures such as Dennis Skinner, who's also very pro-Leave. The leadership wants to present what's happening in Birkenhead as Frank's problem, but it's clear that in the Parliamentary Labour Party there's a sense that similar problems are being played out in turf wars within constituency Labour parties I elsewhere. I think the other interesting one, though, is Mike Gapes, because he's not like Frank Field in that he's very pro remain he's clearly got problems in i can't remember which of the ilford constituencies whether it's north or south that he has there was talk that he was going to be the next person 
Indeed, there was some leaking off a WhatsApp chat thing that then he ended up denying that he was about also to follow Frank Field. But he's not idiosyncratic in the way in which Frank Field could be said. I mean, you know, Frank Field was quite good friends with Margaret Thatcher. That's pretty unusual for a, a Labour MP. But, I mean, Mike Gapes is much more embedded in the Labour Party culture. I suppose one thing to talk about is deselection. So when Momentum first acquired force within the Labour Party, there was a lot of talk of them simply deselecting all the people associated with the new Labour era, Blairites, the right of the party. Now, recently, what we've seen since the July vote in Parliament is deselection start to threaten people who were seen as allowing the government to stand rather than fall. And that's an issue that unites people in constituency Labour parties from across left and right. So that's Kate Hoey and yes. Frank Field, the, the, the ones who voted with the government on Brexit. But what we've also seen recently, for example, from Daniel Finkelstein writing in The Times, is that the deselection of MPs critical of the leadership is still on the menu for many constituency Labour parties and for momentum. So we've seen a moment where there's been a consensus around certain deselections. Frank Field's constituency is one example and Kate Hoey, for example. But we might be seeing further deselections that don't build a consensus. So Finkelstein's argument, and I think it's partly mischievous, I mean, he's not trying to bolster the Corbyn project, but it also was principled. You can be mischievous and principled at the same time, I think, was to say that... and. And he applies it, though, to a lesser extent to the Conservative Party too, that once you move, as we have over the last 20, 30 years, to a system of democratic politics where the leaders of the parties are elected by the members, and yet the British parliamentary system means that the Prime Minister has to command the support of a majority in the Commons, you have the basic fault line of politics. That is now our fault line. And the fault line is exemplified in Labour, where too many of the MPs were Corbyn to win an election would not be able to support him. And yet he would have been standing to be our future Prime Minister. And Finkelstein says the only logical solution to that problem is deselection. If the members are choosing the leader, the members have to increasingly be able to choose the MPs to give people a real choice at election time, which is if you vote for this party, the person who leads it will be able to get legislation through the Commons because I think it is really true that at the next general election with the current makeup of the Parliamentary Labour Party, if you voted for Corbyn, you wouldn't know whether he could get his programme through the Commons or not. That's true. That fault line is definitely a powerful one. The question whether deselection is a is an answer to it, my impression is that it would create a new fault line, equally deep and sort of difficult to, to bridge, between basically the voting public and these bubbles that become political parties. So the, me- the Labour members and Labour voters, basically. Exactly, be between voters new- and then the big sort of thing that is the political party. So the loop would then be closed, so the membership, the MPs and the leadership would all be fairly united, I suppose. But the extent to which they relate to the wider public would be a very open question. Um, and, and that's what makes Finkelstein's argument mischievous, because he thinks that were the logic to be followed through, Labour would then lose. Because he assumes that <laughs> the membership... Because they would become an unelectable... And the extent which membership of these parties is really reflective of the wider voting public, we've talked about this before, it's not, to, to many extents. Uh, so that's a risky bet for parties, I think. There's another sense in which uh, someone who's not a committable to taking that line is mischievous, in that if MPs who are worried about deselection because of their stance towards Corbyn think there's a cleavage between 
a left Labour membership and Labour voters, then the appeal of breaking away into a new party, which so far has seemed to come to nothing, will start to rise. And we've seen Chukamuna say it's nonsense that there are plans for him to join a new party, but it's clear that the time isn't quite right. I mean, that time might come fairly soon, depending on the progress of the Brexit negotiations, and if the deselection threat becomes an answer to some of these problems. I think that the new party question is runs into the Brexit issue in quite a number of ways because what we'd be talking about, as you've just said, was at the moment would be people who are pretty strong remain within the Labour Party who look like they're, they're the ones who would possibly be the basis of a, a new party. But if you're talking about a new centrist party, it's far from clear, in fact it seems to me to be not clear at all, that that is where the middle ground, the centre ground of, of British politics is. The centre ground of British politics is between pragmatic Remainers and pragmatic Leavers, it's not with passionate Remainers. So actually, you're then going to have a, another political party that is, in some sense, disconnected mm. from where the centre of voter opinion is. So we're just going to create another fault line. I don't know whether that deters the people who might be tempted to leave or not, because I'm not sure that they quite understand how far their opinion is removed from where the centre of British electoral opinion is on this. But I suspect that some of them perhaps understand a little bit of the problem. It will depend on their constituency. But I think the second, the, the new party idea, the kind of centrist party, is also, I think it's part of the same posturing that the second referendum reflects, which is one idea is to launch it literally on the day that the UK leaves the European Union at the end of March and to position itself as a pro-EU party to get the UK back in somehow. Now, that just seems bizarre. The process has been more or less completed. The next phase of negotiations are about a future relationship. It's way behind the times. I want to say something in a minute about the relationship between the two parties and we haven't talked about the Conservatives much today and we will not today but in a couple of weeks but I want to ask Waz about one more possible fault line because thinking about Frank Field it came to me that the other person who defended Frank Field effectively against Corbyn was Tom Watson and we talk about the leadership so it is clear that over the anti-Semitism question, John McDonnell, as Chris described, is more of a, insofar as he's a throwback, it's a throwback on economic questions. And maybe it's not a throwback. Maybe he's actually thinking, he's forward thinking. But you know that, that's where his roots are in, in the economic politics of the 1970s and 1980s. And it is clear from what sort of little smoke signals have been coming out of the Labour Party that he and Corbyn have a very different sense of priorities around this question of... Israel and anti-Semitism and there may be the beginnings of a division between them and then there is clearly a huge division within the leadership between the leader and the deputy leader and Tom Watson still in some sense symbolizes within the Labour Party a kind of anti-Corbyn resistance he and Keir Starmer between them probably an anti-Corbyn resistance but of people who are not under any circumstances going to go anywhere else is there any scope there for that to open up I mean does Tom Watson have any capacity as deputy leader to to make that a bigger fault line? I think Tom Watson is fairly well in touch with the mood of the Labour Party membership and the the more powerful organised elements of it, i.e. momentum, and so would be loath to, from his position, expand any nascent split. With so he's stock. not going to split the party in the sense of splitting it in no. two, but you know, there must be a possibility at some point that... that people quite close to Corbyn think that he is unelectable. So, uh, I'll have to give that a minute. (laughs) (laughs) I think this really gets to the heart of the anti-Semitism fault line, and that 
underneath what seems to be an issue about anti-Semitic attitudes within the Labour Party and the position of Israel is actually a question about the nature of the Labour Party. This whole question between is it a parliamentary party that is trying to achieve something in British politics or is it part of some wider international, almost not quite revolutionary, but something, some very radical kind of politics. And that is the way in which Corbyn has seen things. So for him actually to give ground on the anti-Semitism issue is not just for him to give ground on that particular issue, it's to give ground on his whole worldview. And that, I think, is why he, he struggles to retreat from that. Now, I think if you're McDonald, that is extremely difficult to swallow because basically you're saying that you're prioritising that over British politics and you can't prioritise anything over British politics if you want to be win elections. And so, also if you have a programme, which in McDonald's case is almost exclusively domestic, which presumably is one of the reasons why McDonald is not keen on remaining in the European Union. So I think that McDonald probably does have a pretty good understanding of that and is like, OK, if we are serious about winning power, then we probably cannot continue with Jeremy Corbyn as leader of the party. Now, that gets into a whole other problem because how on earth do you get rid of him yeah. whilst at the same time dealing with the amount of support that he has? Because although, for the reasons that we've already talked about, He's in some sense a very strange leader for the kind of movement around momentum and the wider movement amongst young Labour voters that has has gone with it because he doesn't actually directly speak to their agenda at all. But it doesn't change the fact he's become the leader of that movement. And so what do you do with all the anger that getting rid of him would let out? And there's no answer. There's no either to either side of that dilemma. I, I, I can say this as someone looking at this from the outside, but... I do think that the summer has been catastrophic for Corbyn. And if I was McDonnell or Watson or one of many other people who share many of Jeremy Corbyn's beliefs, recognise that the government is failing and there's a very good chance that Labour will have an opportunity to form a government, I would be considering my options. So Tom Watson, I would say, is obviously aware of the extent to which this summer has been a disastrous one for Labour in many ways. But we'll also be facing the fundamental problem that I think Helen has put her finger on, which is that it might not be possible to have Corbynism without Corbyn, not because there's something particularly wonderful about Corbyn's ability to manage the party. It's just that he's so attached to this transformation that's happened. There is no one obvious in place to take his place. And I think that's a real problem for people who are close to the leadership and critical of the leadership at the same time. So let's just finish then with the question about how this relates to the dysfunctionality of the Conservative Party. There was an editorial in the Sunday Times this weekend that said that one of the many things that Jeremy Corbyn was responsible for over the summer was allowing the Conservative Party to indulge their various factional and intransigent forms of politics because they don't believe that he can become Prime Minister. So he's kind of allowed them, I think the phrase was, to indulge in indiscipline because were there to be a Labour leader who was really frightening the Tories that they were going to lose power, it would discipline the party. And the Conservative Party traditionally does kind of pull itself together, tries to pull itself together around election time. And Corbyn is allowing this kind of fantasy politics on the Conservative side to play out because they don't believe that he's going to be Prime Minister and he can't be got rid of. So they're safe. On the other side, you could say it works the other way around too, which is that if you're Corbyn or anyone around Corbyn, you see a government that it's really hard to see it surviving. It's very hard to get through sort of as a exercise in imagining the future the next few weeks, never mind the next few months, never mind until 2022. So 
the Labour Party also has licence to indulge itself because it doesn't believe that the opposition that it faces is capable of getting its act together. And the weird thing about this is that I think conventionally two-party politics, when one party falls apart or does something stupid or disappears off the deep end, the other party does what Blair did with Labour, which is just kind of squat in the middle and try and hoover it all up. And we've got this new equilibrium, which is, I think, so in my experience of British politics is unusual, possibly unique, where the dysfunctionality of each party is reinforcing the dysfunctionality of the other party. And that, I think, is one of the reasons why many people, including increasingly voters in opinion polls, are starting to worry that the system is dysfunctional. I mean, that actually politics isn't working. But see, I wonder whether whether the Tories are... I think they are afraid of Corbynism. Not of Corbyn, I think, for the reasons you say. There's somebody who they don't think is likely to, to deliver, and that gives them a certain degree of space, if you like, to indulge. But I've been struck at the extent to which, in the run-up to the conference season, where you know, some of these themes coalesce, there's been a lot of discussion on the Tory side about what big ideas the Conservative Party needs to have in order to win the next election, particularly on social questions, on social and economic questions, questions of work, all, all, all these big themes. And the sense is definitely that there are some ideas out there which tend to be monopolised by a more radical a movement on the left, channeling its way through the Labour Party, and the Tories need to have something of their own version. They can't be a status quo party with regard to the economy. So that suggests that there is a bit of traditional British politics at work, even if both parties don't seem to be you know, functioning very well. I think I partly agree, but I think that we shouldn't underestimate how difficult Brexit makes British politics, because I think that that sort of Sunday Times line is basically trying to explain too much in terms of Britain's own domestic politics and the nature of our political parties. You can just as well explain the difficulties of the Conservative Party, not via Jeremy Corbyn, but by the fact that they are divided between how strategically to respond to Brexit, to whether it is possible to find a new relationship with the European Union based on reasonably freeish trade and some kind of regulatory alignment, at least around goods, or whether there has to be a complete break because the European Union, what remains the European Union 27, is simply not going to do a trade agreement of any kind with Britain in the foreseeable future. Partly, they can't find an answer to that because what the European Union is going to do is still actually, I think, uncertain. It's still subject to events over the next six months. So there's no way in which I think the Conservative Party cannot be divided because the answer to that question is inherently uncertain. I'd say that the luxury of indiscipline that the Tories have been afforded is is not necessarily a product of Labour's incapacity. This anti-Semitism crisis will blow over. It's Brexit. It's Brexit that's causing eruptions in both parties. And in a sense, that is a very specific kind of political problem, but it's also one so big that it seems to be on the cusp of realigning bits of British politics that didn't look like they were going to change a few years ago. So I, I think it is, above all, Brexit. I mean, it won't blow over because anti-Semitism in some sense never blows over. It's just sort of there. But at the same time, the question of Israel is so central to the way in which Corbyn views the world. So long as Corbyn is the leader of the Labour Party, this will be an issue for the Labour Party. And one last thought, which is, so this is also, as Helen reminds us, often post-2008 politics. And part of the realignment here is not just about Brexit. Brexit itself is a symptom of something deeper, potentially. 
And it is people's increasing realisation that many of the forces they face are profound, they're structural, they're kind of baked into a whole system, not just of politics, but of economics and of sort of how societies are ordered. And that's higher up the political agenda than it was a few years ago, certainly than it was in the 90s and the 2000s. And if that's your political mindset, then the kind of compromise negotiation that is required by deft parliamentary politics or this kind of high politics that we've been talking about seems like an irrelevance. I mean, we have on both sides, I think also on the Conservative side around Brexit, people who have been thinking about what they think of the sort of structural unfairness of politics over a 20, 30-year period. If you've been embarked on that kind of really long-term campaign about changing the fundamental setup, it is harder to get into the mindset of the compromises needed to negotiate high politics. And what both sides seem to be is less willing to compromise than they were in the past. And that makes sense to me. It makes sense to me that if you think politics is fundamentally now about deep structural forces, compromise is not where it's at. I think it depends what the deep structural forces are. Because I think that Brexit itself is not a deep structural force. It's a manifestation of, of a structural fault lines that are running through the European Union and that run through Britain's membership of the, the European Union. And there is only a compromise as a response to it. Right, but the people who are uncompromising on the Conservative side, it's because they see the European project as itself, the kind of the deep structural problem that they face. And they've been saying that for 20, 30 more years, some of them. So why would they compromise now? I mean, this is a really, you know, thing we probably can't talk about in a few minutes, that it, it really goes to the question about what is the relationship between Brexit and British domestic politics? Because I think that you can look at it and say, look, actually, until the referendum anyway, British domestic politics was pretty much in a relatively stable position in regard to Britain's membership of the, the European Union. At least it was from the point of Black Wednesday and the problems of Maastricht ratification onwards. And then what, if you like, crashed into it was the Eurozone crisis and the fallout of that. Now, I would say then that the referendum itself has then changed something about British domestic politics because it has taken a group of people largely on the left, but not only on the left, who were sort of moderately Eurosceptic and made them much more enthusiastic about the European Union than they previously were. But I think that in terms of what happened in the run-up to the referendum is is that what happened in significant part was is that a part of, of British opinion, both amongst voters and amongst the political class that was sort of largely Eurosceptic and wanted to stay in the European Union but didn't want much more integration, in fact probably didn't want any more integration, was pushed into opposing Britain's membership of the European Union. But it wasn't pushed there because of anything that changed in British politics. It was pushed there because of what happened within the European Union itself. And then that basically blew apart the compromise position that Britain's membership of the European Union got into, which was, we are in, but we will have these opt-outs. That has now become untenable. So you've got to have a response to it now that looks uncompromising, which is either you've got to go back in despite all these problems, or you've got to be out. And then once you're out, you don't really get to decide as to what your new economic relationship is going to be, because the EU itself is going to have a very large say in what that is. So what does compromise in this context mean? Because I think that the underlying dilemma for Britain has simply been exposed, in which the old politics, which Blair, for instance, you know, like, Occupy just doesn't exist on this question anymore. 
we might be overcomplicating. I mean, we are also in a situation where it's a majoritarian political system and we have a government that lacks the power of a majority. So almost inevitably, irrespective of Brexit, we'd have been in a curious you know, political moment. The fact that the government relies on the DUP for its authority within Parliament makes the whole Brexit negotiations almost impossible to, to resolve. It complicates it massively because of the issue of Northern Ireland. So I think... Simply, the government is incredibly weak and is having to do things which are incredibly difficult and put those two things together and we have a kind of impasse. So I think sometimes we can go a bit too deep. It's, you know, it's also about parliamentary arithmetic. Yeah, we wouldn't want to go too deep or overcomplicate things on this podcast. We'll tweet the link to an episode we did earlier this year about Jeremy Corbyn, entitled Who is Jeremy Corbyn? Next week, we're going to get away as long as we can from British politics and talk about Trump but we'll be coming back to this as you've heard conference season is coming up and some of these issues are coming to a head and we will be here to discuss it do join us for that my name is David Runciman and we've been talking politics the bake-off oh yes oh i didn't see it last night didn't you heat wave no i just saw it on twitter so you don't know who nope. do you want me to say no nope. nope. i'm watching it? succession i recommend it is that that hbo sort of murdoch Ma- mafioso no, it's, it's a media family Brian kind Fox. of like murder yeah. yeah murdoch rather than i think yes. the other one i recommend <laughs> which i finished watching last week is looming tower which is about the conflicts between the FBI and the CIA leading up to 9-11. Yeah. What was it called? I think Helen's algorithm where it says people who watch this would also enjoy it would be really interesting. <laughs> so you would just be like a conspiracy theory. <laughs> <laughs> this is not a conspiracy theory, Looming Tower. This is actually what it literally is. This is the actual conspiracy theory. It's not a theory. No, the point is, is that this isn't about any counter-explanation about what happened on 9-11. It's simply about what the, how the CIA and the FBI interacted with each other in the years leading up to 9-11.